The following podcast contains coarse language and strong opinions on wine. Seriously, these two have potty mouths and little self-control. Listeners, you've been warned. Live from our basement studios in suburban Chicago, it's another edition of That Wine Pod. I am Pete, and sitting across from me is the Superman of sparkling, Vino Mike. Pop, 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 pop that cork all day. <laughs> pop and bubbly. Pop and bubbly. Up in here. Life is lovely. Mm-hmm. Pop, hey, that is a great song. Little Will Smith, pop the bubbly, life is lovely. Oh, Will Smith, man. So uh, all his... His old, old, you know, the classics or whatever. Summertime. Yeah. Parents just don't understand. No, they don't. And now we are parents, and maybe we don't understand now. DJ Vino Mike over there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Mike, I think we got to jump right into it today. What's in that bottle? All right. Today in that bottle, we are drinking the bubbly. We've got some really outstanding sparkling wine, and this comes from a little bit off the beaten path. No, we're not in Champagne. We're not in California. Uh, where else do they do good sparkling wine? Spain. Spain. Cava. Cava. Not in, not in Spain. We're in Italy. There's some good sparkling wine in Italy. Prosecco is, you know, pretty well known. I've I think a, I think a few people know what Prosecco is. Uh, Francia Corta, that's kind of their prestige region for sparkling wine. But we're in Piedmont, land, so, of, land of Nebbiolo. I was going to say, so we've got sparkling Nebbiolo. We do have sparkling Nebbiolo, but not in that bottle today. Oh, Although the, there is, and this producer makes some, which is killer, and you've had it, my friend. Yes. But um, we can definitely plug that. So we're drinking a producer called Del Teto. That is the last name of the family. Uh, they were established, I believe, in the 60s. And it was around the late 70s that they started making sparkling wine at their winery. And these guys are located in a part of Piedmont called Roero. Roero is a DOC. It's a geographical region. It's a little bit north of Barbaresco and Barolo, which Piedmont is most well known for those red wines that come from those two regions. But the Roero makes great Nebbiolo as well. And in addition, they have one of my favorite white wines from Italy, Arnace. Uh, which is the grape varietal that is very well known here. The soils are a little bit different. It's a little bit sandier here. You get a, you know, a little bit more aromatics basically out of the grapes that are planted in this area. And our nace just does really, really well here. So the Del Tetto family actually started out by making sparkling Arnace wines, maybe Nebbiola too, like in the late seventies. So we're talking about almost 40 years of sparkling wine history, um, at this estate. And it was in the late nineties that they just said, basically, fuck it. Let's make champagne because we're awesome. Piedmont is awesome. They planted Chardonnay and Pinot Noir on their estate and voila, you know, the vines had to mature. This was maybe in the late nineties or mid to late nineties. And then right around 2000, early two thousands, they made their first sparkling wine of champagne, uh, champagne style of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. That's awesome. I just picture like a family dinner, Mm-hmm. And then just like the patriarch or the matriarch stands up and like, we're fucking awesome. We're going to make some fucking champagne. <laughs> That's it. Done. Except in Italian. So it's like, champagne was. Si, That is basically what happened. This is a very accurate, true story. Uh, we'll have the, you know, Carlo Del Teto comes to market. Um, we'll have him on the show to authenticate that uh, for sure. <laughs> we'll have him reenact everybody at the table. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this is what happened. They had this dinner and then they started, uh, you know, making champagne. But these guys... This is the real deal. If you look at, go on their website, um, you, you can find photos basically like they have the riddling racks. Everything is hand riddled. Um, so the bottle we're drinking today is actually vintage. It's 2013. Um, it's, it's just labeled as Del Teto Brut. So on the front of the label, it just looks like a non-vintage sparkling wine. It's very unassuming. And then on the back of the label, you've got all sorts of really good information. You got the vintage, which is 2013. They actually put when they disgorge the wine on this bottle. 
Why is that important? Well, this gives you an indication of how long the sparkling wine was in contact with the lees. So when you make sparkling wine, you take wine, you throw some shit in the bottle with it, which we're going to call yeast and sugar and things like that. Not getting technical, right? This is that wine pod. So you throw some of this shit in the bottle with the wine, you put a crown cap on it, and that starts re-fermenting the wine in the bottle. And through that process, like sediments and solids form that start settling in the, in the bottle. And that's what the riddling rack is. So the riddling rack, you know, the bottle is at an angle and you know, somebody comes through hopefully by hand is like the real deal, authentic way to do this and just gives the bottle like a little quarter turn. And that moves those lees and those solids around so that over the course of time, you get all this great texture and flavor that's extracted from this process. And the longer you do this, the more kind of complex the wine becomes in the long, in, in the long run here. So for Del Teto here, these guys disgorged this 2013 in May of 2018. So the harvest is probably somewhere in October or so. Sure. G- yep. Give or take, yeah, right? Give or take. I don't know when Chardonnay necessarily ripens or Pinot Noir, but yeah. yeah but it, it's probably close, right? Yep. Late September yeah. to mid-October, somewhere yeah, in there. Early fall. And then it's starts to make the wine then they put the shit in it and then it sits in its own filth bath (laughs) in in the bottle to get all the the flavors and it's going to sit in there for in this case like four and a half years yeah this is like they put like approximately 48 months but you know if 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 it started that process in january of 2014 then you know we're talking about it you know little over 50, 52, 53 months on the lees. And then they disgorge it, which is basically just, you know, popping the, the, the cap off and then putting the cork in. And there's some other technical things that happen during that process. But, you know, basically they put the cork in and it's done. It's done fermenting. They get all those lees out because at the end of the riddling process, the bottle should be kind of upside down. So all that filth bath crap is that that is really good for the wine is right. at the very bottom in the neck. So it, it when they pop the, the cap off, that'll all come out first versus the wine. Um, you might lose a little bit of juice so they can actually just put a little dash of wine in there to top it off and then put the cork in and voila and then it can bottle age like this is 2013 vintage stuff uh you know we're we're in 2020 right now so almost two years in bottle yeah and and about seven years eight years from the you know seven years from the vintage um and guys this is pretty awesome stuff where we haven't really even delved into the scents and aromas and smells going on yeah well and i i want to just bring up real quick when you hear all of that, you start to get a sense of why true champagne and wines made in the champagne method like this one costs so much, right? There's a lot of time, yeah. which costs money. There's a lot of physical labor that costs money. Mm-hmm. So when you start to look at how do these get to market and they're so expensive, well, that that would be why. However, this one is not all that much money for the quality of what you're getting. I mean, it's like, I want to say like mid twenties. This is an absolute steal. And I I think like, 25 to 30 25 to 30 bucks is a a fair range i I couldn't remember what i paid for it but i mean it it was not that much money compared to like a champagne like a true champagne yeah yeah just absolutely for because this would be the equivalent of a grower champagne that's right and that's that's the point of having that disgorgement on the back label like every single champagne in france is disgorged like all of them but not all of them have that disgorgement date on the back. It's only like the producer that cares enough to let the consumer know what they're doing. It's more more or less the grower producers versus the big houses like a Moet or a Vouve or um, I don't know, Bollinger maybe, some something a, a lot bigger than these smaller individual producers. So what we have here with this Del Teto in Piedmont is the equivalent of a grower producer from say someone like Terry Thies' book in Champagne. And no joke, you pour this blind for a champagne lover and there's no way they're they're not going to guess that this is champagne. Yeah, I went nuts for it and bought a bunch of bottles like as soon as I tasted it. Yeah. Cuz it was great. But why don't why don't you give us your take on and what's going on with this one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right off the bat, you just get this nice warm brioche 
Like, yeah. like it's got the yeastiness, like, and because of all that time in the bottle, uh, in the filth, in the filth bath, that, that is what it's, it's a process called autolysis that y'all nerds can Google if you want, but that's what creates this complexity and this texture and adds these notes of like toast and brioche and things like that. Cause a lot of the times in a regular wine, that'll just come from aging the wine in a barrel in oak. Uh, this doesn't see any oak at all. So all of that just comes from the fermentation and the longer you do it the more pronounced these are but outside of that we have i think gorgeous orchard fruits singing like tart green apple and apple skin uh some fresh pear uh you know there's some dried citrus like like uh you know like a lemon lemon peel or like lemon curd almost yeah that's what i got and it's really, really nice. And then you've got the earthy components, the th- stuff that comes from the earth. So the minerality, the soil, the little bit of chalkiness, the, uh, the, uh, like flowers, the floral aspect to this wine is really pretty as well. And, um, again, you know, it's, it's in balance. Like wine is about balance and this has to me balance in spades. Yeah. That beautiful, tiny little bubble. How easy is this to drink? I mean, oh, yeah. it's glasses I, empty. I, I, I chugged that. I'm talking too much. Otherwise mine would be gone. Well, I, when I think about this one too, this to me is the quintessential. If you're having a nice brunch with somebody you care about or a couple of people you, you know, you want to that, that love wine, like this is perfect because this is going to go with everything. Mm-hmm. That you're going to put on like a brunch spread and it's delicious on its own. This, this yeah. is real deal. Like that end, the end part where you get this kind of uh, creamy, you know, mouthfeel right after those bubbles and it's like cleansed and it's just such a beautiful um, experience, awesome. you know? It's awesome. I love the brunch. Like this is brunch in a glass right here. You get the, like the warm cinnamon roll, but also the, um, you know, I don't know. I love dousing my eggs in a bunch of hot sauce yep. and, you know, that zestiness is in there. And honestly, you could douse eggs in hot sauce and still drink this wine. Absolutely. Like, it's not going to, it's going to cut right through anything. The acidity on this thing. It's, you know what time it is. That's right. Time to clean the microphone off, man. I'm <laughs> drooling all over the place over here. That um. that reminded me, talking about brunch, My one of my favorite Simpsons lines of all time is when Marge goes off with a guy who's like a bowler. And, and, and okay. he's like, we should go to brunch. And she's like, what's brunch? And he's like, it's not quite breakfast. It's not quite lunch, but it comes with a slice of cantaloupe at the end. <laughs> yes, I think I remember that. That is awesome. Oh. And isn't that the truth, too? It you is. Know? Not quite breakfast, not quite lunch, but everybody loves it. Oh. You know, can we all agree in today's crazy political climate that we all at least just like brunch? Yeah, right? Brunch for president. <laughs> so oh. uh, one last thing here. I don't exactly know the production on this wine, but... This is small. It's a small producer. It's all estate fruit. They're not buying grapes from anywhere else. Where are you going to buy Chardonnay and Pinot in Piedmont anyways? You got to plant it yourself. And an important thing to bring up is the importer here. This is imported by a company called Bevuma, which company, you know, it's actually a one-man show. It's our, you know, buddy Paolo Ceruti. He uh, imports wines, uh, here, but he's based here in Chicago and, uh, he, he brings this into the market here. And this is just one little snapshot of kind of what he is able to, you know, like we talk a lot on the show about the style of the importer, like by Kermit Lynch, by this, by that. I think one day people will know Bevuma, you know, it's definitely a little under the radar, but, um, everything this guy brings in, there's passion behind it. It's small, like human beings doing the best they can to make the best wine they can and um it just comes through in in the wines and this uh, i mean del teto man and besides sparkling wine just all their all their wines are amazing like arnais the nebbiolo they do barbera they do now a still pinot noir that retails around 20 bucks a bottle that is like drinking really good borgone yeah i was gonna say if you burgundy lover you're gonna be all over that Mm -hmm. so awesome and speaking of burgundy lover Oh, we we have a Burgundy lover to bring on the show today. Yeah, I mean, so I, I totally forgot. Yeah, we have a guest today. Don't I was like, what are we going to talk about now? Yeah, I I think you got to tell people though <laughs> about your social media prowess 
and, and the <laughs> connection that was made. Uh, it's kind of a funny story, right? So we did uh, that Natty show uh, not too long ago, and I decided posting it on Facebook. Uh, you know, I made a little joke like, all right, we're like episode whatever. I can't remember the number, but this is that Natty show. And then I said, no, not Natalie McLean. And I kind of tagged her. I did tag her. Uh, not Natalie McLean, but Natural Wine, because the Natural Wine takes on this nickname Natty. And it was just kind of a fun joke. And, you know, uh, to my delight, she reached out. She emailed us. And she said, hey, I really love what you guys are doing um, on that wine pod, and maybe we can collab. I'd love to uh, maybe be a guest on the show. And uh, in in a heartbeat, I was like, yes, absolutely. Let's do this. So um, we picked a date, and that date is today. So we're going we're gonna to have Natalie McLean join us. McLean? I think it's McLean. I think so. McLean! Reminds me of Die Hard, right? <laughs> um, fist with your toes. Fist with your toes, right. But we're we're honored to bring her on the show today, and this is this is our TWP going international. She's joining us from her home in uh, Ottawa, Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should get over to the call with her right after a quick word from our sponsor. All right, our guest was named the world's best drinks writer at the World Food Media Awards, in way more than we've done, Mike. Right there, and it has won four James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards. Natalie McLean is also the only person who have won both the MFK Fisher Distinguished Writing Award from the James Beard Foundation and the MFK Fisher Award for Excellence in Culinary Writing from, and now we're going to get tough here, let's see how I do, La Dame de Scoffier International. Natalie's first book, Red, White, and Drunk All Over, A Wine-Soaked Journey from Grapes to Glass. Such a fun book. And her second book, Unquenchable, A Tipsy Quest for the World's Best Bargain Wines, were both selected as one of Amazon's best books of the year. She teaches wildly popular online wine courses at nataliemcclain.com. And she joins us now from her home in Ottawa, Ontario. Natalie, welcome to That Wine Pod. It's great to be here with you both, Mike, Peter. I'm enjoying listening to your podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, we are thrilled to have you on. And this is our first uh, That Wine Pod International episode. Um, so <laughs> Crossing borders. <laughs> how is, uh, how's the weather up there today as we come into spring? Are you thawing out? We are. It's a slow thaw here in Ottawa. Um, we're one of the coldest cities on the planet. Mm. Um, but it's sunny and things are melting. So it's heading in the right direction. Wonderful. Beautiful. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about. So I wanted to get started with just a couple of kind of warm up questions, just uh, some fun stuff here to loosen up, get the conversation going, start things flowing a little bit organically. And then we can get into some of the topics that revolve around what you do, which is you're a great writer about wine. Uh, you do Thank scoring you. Uh, as well. And we can talk about how those two things tie together. Um, but, uh, first I'm going to fire a few questions at you, um, and just go with your gut on these. Okay. So here we sure. go. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> burgundy or Bordeaux? Ooh, burgundy. Don't have to think about that one. Right love, off the bat. love, love. Pinot Noir all the way, even though I will not refuse a great glass of Bordeaux that's purchased for me. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 I imagine that goes with most regions and varietals if it's purchased for you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's what I say when someone asks me, what is my favorite wine? It's always the one somebody else buys. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, you know, in, in Red, White, and Drunk All Over, I'm just so drawn in when you're talking about your experience at DRC. And uh, it was it was incredible to listen to that story. And I just I had to ask that question just to see, you know, uh, if that's still the case today. And it, it obviously is. So, Absolutely. Uh, all right. So we'll move on. Uh, organic or biodynamic? Biodynamic, if I can get it, for sure. Because to me, it's a, a spectrum, a continuing spectrum of paying closer and closer attention to the vineyards. And so as we move to organic and biodynamic, I think the challenges are greater for the winemaker, but the care is also greater. Doesn't guarantee you a better bottle, but I think it guarantees you that the winemaker had to pay closer attention to his vines or her vines. Right. Indeed. Okay. Corkscrew. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me start that over. Cork 
or screw cap? Screw cap, please. <laughs> I, I don't think wine should have to have a special implement to open it. That said, if you hand me a bottle of Burgundy with a cork, I will not create a fuss. <laughs> All right. And lastly, uh, let's go with 100-point scale or 20-point scale. 100-point scale, though that has many nuances, as you know, but I think it's the most relatable for most uh, consumers, at least in North America, because we all grew up with it, test scores out of 100 and so on. But lots of layers to that one. Yeah. D does it translate just like that, in your opinion, that a 90 is, is the equivalent of an A minus and an 89 is a B plus? Or how do you think about the, the, like the value of these numbers? Well, I think they're of service to readers, um, but I don't think they're an exact translation of what we remember from school. Uh, I personally have never seen any um, wines rated lower than about 80, um, sure. with the exception of <laughs> Lynn McCoy, the Bloomberg colonist whom I interviewed on my podcast, and she actually gave a wine zero and published it. So kudos to her. She's really making a statement. But generally, I find that the scores start at about 80 or 85 even. And, you know, now they say um, 95 is the new 90. So you really have to take it all in context. Who's giving that score and what do they mean by it? Sure. And you give scores yourself. So why don't we talk a little bit about like when you started your career as a wine writer and was that at the same exact time as reviewing wines and giving scores to them, or did that come along a little bit later? That came along later. So I started writing about wine um, almost 20 years ago. Holy smokes. Anyway, my liver for the people. But um, <laughs> at, for the first five years, hey, cheers I did to not... that, by the way. We are, we're sipping on oh, thank you. a little nice little bubbly over here uh, to um, kind of celebrate the uh, the show with you today. So. It's lovely. Which which wine are you drinking? Oh, this is a sparkling wine from Piedmont, Italy. The producer mm. is called Del Tetto, and it is um, these guys make champagne in Piedmont. Let's just say that, like real deal mm. stuff. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Um, it's on the lees for almost four years, actually, and uh, great, great stuff. Yeah, Del Tetto. We'll link it up in the show notes for sure. Terrific. You're making me thirsty, so you're doing your job. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, for the first five years, I did not score wines. I think it was a matter of confidence and of understanding how I could be of best service, frankly, to to my readers. So I would have all these lovely tasting notes. No one wants to read those, or very few people, I should say, want to read those. Most people want to buy wine like they buy toothpaste, make a quick decision, get in, get out. So a lot of them do the you know, the QPR, the quality price ratio. So they'll look at your score, which is the indicator of quality to them and compare it to the price. And they want to max out. Can I get a 90 point wine under $20? Something like that. So, I mean, for the longest time I held out thinking at first thinking that you can't trap a subjective experience like wine into a number. But, you know, over time I realized that it's just a snapshot of the wine and your personal opinion, and it's subjective as all get out. I, I really don't think we can have objective wine reviews. We can have unbiased wine reviews, but objectivity, I don't think it's possible as a human being. You're going to be influenced by all of your experience, all of the wine you've ever tasted, all of the aromas and flavors that are in your mind. Um, that all goes in there. And mm. as I think as long as people understand that, um, they can be useful to readers. Great. I agree with all with all of that and the subjectivity, of course. And then what you said, the word you used, you said snapshot. And mm -hmm. that's always what I kind of think about with these wine reviews, that it's it's tasting the wine at one moment in time. It's usually not revisited. Um, it, it almost like the review has a little bit of an expiration date on it. It does. It does. It's like looking at a company's balance sheet. That'll give you one moment in time, the health of that company or, you know, uh, how it's doing. But the transactions happen every day. And wine, they say, is a living thing. Um, but it is changing in the bottle. And we are changing as people. And where we experience that wine will change from time to time, depending on who we're with or what we're eating. So I think that that all has to be considered as to what 
uh, goes into a score and its meaning. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. And one of the things that you just said was interesting in terms of it can't be, un, I mean, it could be unbiased, but it's definitely subjective. And I look at Venice as a really good example of that. When Venice is doing reviews, sometimes you will see two different reviewers on the same wine and they might be three or four points apart or five points apart and just have tasted a completely different wine. You know, whether it's maybe Antonio Galoni and Neil Martin, right, have tasted something and just had wildly different scores and they'll publish both. I kind of give them kudos for that because of the fact that it shows that there's a different way of looking at it. And maybe you connect to one wine writer or another, um, which is interesting, right? Which kind of brings me to my point with you is that readers are going to end up connecting to your style and kind of yes. what you believe is 90 points. Are you honing in on any specific regions or are you rating things all across the world? I rate wines from all over the planet, whatever I sample. So I get sent lots of samples from wineries and wine agencies, but I also uh, go to the liquor stores here uh, for media tastings where we can sample what's coming out in the stores. It's uh, Here it's the LCBO and I taste all of, pretty much all of the wines that are coming out. Um, so, but yes, I got to agree with what you're saying too. You got, you got to line your palate up with whomever's giving that score and, and just know what they consider a 90. Cause it's kind of, again, like I keep going to these financial metaphors, but it's an Australian dollar, a Canadian dollar and a U.S. dollar are not all the same. And neither is a 90, a 90 and a 90 from three different critics. As long as you know what currency you're dealing with and your palate is lining up with theirs, I think you're good because it's kind of a springboard. When I give a 90, my readers know what that means. Um, whereas somebody else might say, wow, a 90 for that Beaujolais? Are you nuts? Like, how can you even say that when, say, Shadow Margot gets a 94? Well, my readers, they don't live in a world where they pop open Shadow Margot on a Wednesday night. So when I give a 90, it's, it's, relevant to them, what their price range is, what they're, what they're exposed to, what they're probably drinking. Got it. So is the, you're saying, is the Canadian dollar very strong these days? <laughs> I'd like it to be stronger, but that's okay. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love California wines here and I review them all the time and Washington and New York. That's about, oh, and Oregon. Um, so we get a good selection of US, but not by far, not all all of the U.S. wines here. Okay. So the the timeline when you started scoring, is it fair to say it was roughly around like 2005 or so? Yes, right take. around so there. Yeah. What, what critics at the time prior to you writing uh, or scoring wines influenced you uh, or did you have any that you followed? Of course, we can talk about the big, the big name, Robert Parker as well, and um, who started this whole thing or popularized it. Um, so what was your take on him and any, uh, any of the major critics out there were an influence on you? Well, I think, you know, no one is more feared or followed than um, Robert Parker. He really set the stage for popularizing the 100-point score. Um, and I believe in 2019, he retired, but his legacy certainly lives on in, in his influence in using the 100 points. Um, whereas across the Atlantic, I think the British were um, kind of not befuddled, but wondering why on earth would you ever score a wine? It's kind of like scoring dates. It's just something mm. you don't do mm. if you're, you know, proper. But I think eventually because consumers responded so well to to scoring wine, um, more and more critics have gone with it, including myself. I mean, wine, as you know, is unlike any other consumer product. You can try on a dress, you can read the first chapter of a book, but you can't open a bottle of wine in the liquor store and try it first, at least, you know, not legally. So there's quite a bit of mystique uh, for a lot of consumers. And it's quite a big purchase for a lot of people, at least those who follow reviews. Um, they're not just defaulting to the same wine every week. Um, so they, they want some guidance. And I, I think that's I, a good thing to do as a critic. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, we're talking about since you you know brought up retail stores. You know, Pete and I. Uh, you know, I was 13 years in retail. Pete, uh, you know, about the same, maybe give or take, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, more or less. We we've sold a lot of wine uh, using wine scores for them, and you know, it, it, in the beginning of the episode, you you did mention like the new 90 is now a 95. Do you do you see that this is the trend that you know, the direction things are, are heading in today's day of scoring where 20 years ago a 90 did actually mean something and now maybe it's a little bit diluted. Absolutely. I mean, great inflation uh, is definitely um, part of wine scores now. And I think where that happened is, you know, it used to be Robert Parker and, and some of the other leading critics from the Wine Spectator and so on were basically the universe of scores used. Um, but now, of course, with social media and the internet and mobile apps and so on, everyone's a critic and everyone likes to get quoted, or many people do. They like, like to see their names on the liquor store shelves. And on the other side, you've got the liquor stores wanting to sell every bottle of wine that they have, so they're going to go with the highest score. They're optimizing, I think, on two factors. What's the highest score we can find for this wine from the best known critic? And so they're not going to use a low score from a well-known critic. So they're going to optimize on those two variables. And so when you go into a liquor store these days, you're going to see mostly 90s, some high 80s, but I don't see anything lower than that. And I think that there are... Um, you know, new writers, not just the new writers, not just the youngins, but, um, you know, who want to get that attention. And the only way you're going to get it in for a lot of stores, not every store, is if you're scoring wines highly enough so that they're going to quote you. Um, so it's kind of a, a vicious cycle there. And then I think the downside, of course, to all of that is when consumers start buying a bottle of wine that's been rated 98 and it's a uh, whatever, it doesn't inexpensive wines don't necessarily not warrant high scores, but let's say, you know, it's a very inexpensive wine that they stop trusting scores altogether. If they find out what's in the bottle really doesn't warrant a 98 in, in most worlds <laughs> that they know. I have a two part question on around that exact subject. Do you think that there's anything to the fact that maybe winemaking has gotten better over the last 20 years or so making it that way. I mean, I think climate's impacted that some too. And then the, the corollary to that is, do you think that winemakers started to change their style to meet what was getting the higher scores? And that's homogenized some of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yes. So I do think that winemakers are improving their techniques, and also becoming more knowledgeable in their particular soils and climates. They know which grapes work better there. The technology has improved as we've gone on from, you know, stainless steel, coal fermentation, so on, to, to all the um, younger winemakers or at least apprentices doing stages around the world. So they'll go work the harvest in one hemisphere and then work the next harvest in the, the next hemisphere. Because as you know, if you're in the Southern hemisphere, your fall for your harvest is the reverse of where it is in the US and Canada. So they're getting a lot of international expertise and in bringing that where they go. Um, so I think definitely winemaking has improved and costs have come down. Um, and definitely your two part, your second part, I do think Winemakers, some winemakers, again, responded especially to the power of Robert Parker and his scores at the beginning, um, making so-called so fruit bombs, um, right. though he denies that's his style, uh, and catering to, to um, Parker to get those high scores because the, the phone would ring off the hook. But I think that's less and less of an issue now because of the proliferation of people scoring wine. Um, and you really have to trust, you know, who's giving that score. Um, but also I think there's just a wider market for wine now. And I'm not sure, you know, that people are so focused on two or three critics anymore and catering to them. And the other point that I'd add is that rating wine to me is very different from rating a restaurant or 
even a movie. There are, as you know, thousands of wines that come out onto the liquor store's shelves every week. But there's, you know, maybe one restaurant that opens in your town that week if if you live in a big city. So a review of a restaurant by the major paper or by trusted critics has much more impact because people are looking for that review. They want to know if they should try the restaurant. But wine reviews, there's just so many going on, like so much product coming out, so many reviews going out. I think each individual review has less of an impact on the wine's success compared to, say, a restaurant or a movie. Interesting. So, you know, in this in this day and age where we have high quality wines being produced, uh, that, you know, that we just talked about, uh, a lot of people reviewing wines, including yourself. Does the audience need you guys anymore? Or, <laughs> you know, and yeah, and if t- your answer is yes, what are you personally doing that's maybe a little bit different than the rest of the crowd? What kind of value can you bring? to the wine consumer? Great question. Retire the dinos. <laughs> Put them out to pasture. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's developing your tribe. So online, we, although there's many, many, many voices, we're almost going back to the days when people spoke to one another personally um, to get product recommendations, whether it was wine or anything else. And I think we're back to that. We're back to small tribes online and finding the critic or the person you trust and in turn as a writer, finding my tribe. So um, I think what value I add is that I try to get to know my tribe personally. Honestly, they like my style. I either, um, I'm polarizing because I take wine very personally. I talk about it very personally. It's very conversational. I will tell you what's going on in my life. It's like we are friends sitting at the table. Um, I tend not to use very technical language, um, but I want to be accurate and deliver a, a good impression. But um, I want to put wine in the context of life, of culture. of, And so that's why I write the books I've written. I teach the courses that I do. And I'm always giving lots of food pairing suggestions. So it's it's not a very analytical approach. It's a very conversational approach, very personal. And, you know, when I meet someone who's been on my newsletter, even for a year, but a lot of them much longer, they feel they know me. Um, because I've told them what's going on in my life, my weakness for chocolate covered almonds, the fact, you know, the fact I put out decoy wines for people who don't know wine much and all sorts of things, all sorts of mischievous things. And people like that because they want, they want to know about any topic from another person. It's how do they relate to you as a person? Sure. Having that connection, a more personal connection. It, it just sounds to me like you're more, of an author doing wine reviews than the other way around. Exactly. And that's why I don't call myself a critic, even though I am critiquing wines. And because that's actually, you know, I actually had another problem with scoring wine. So after I got over the first five years and readers wanted them and wanted them, I thought, all right, I'll do this. But I was, and still am to a certain extent, but I'm trying to get over myself, a writing snob, not a wine snob. And what I mean by that is I thought wine reviews were the recipes of the of the wine world. So, yeah, okay, fine. If you but if you're really a serious writer, you're writing long narrative pieces, writing books in a magazine, your column is long. Um, you know, it's it's like working at a newspaper. You start out reporting on the fires. Those are the wine reviews, those are the recipes. But if you're really talented, you'll be on that editorial page writing long form. And so that was really super snobby of me. And um, I had to, as I say, get over myself and realize that way more people follow recipes and buy recipe books than they do culinary memoirs. And in the wine world, what people want and need are those reviews. And so I had to start valuing them more, what I was doing and what my readers wanted. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think that your analysis is spot on and you were started to do that right before the advent of social media. And now that social media is here, the age of 
snippets, right, of influencers, you ha- you were going to have to pivot that direction anyway, mm-hmm. regardless, just because of the way that we consume today. Exactly. People want, they want their wine reviews, but they want it wrapped in a story and they want it bound with a relationship. And I think that's even going back to the cookbook analogy, people will buy um, recipe books, but especially if there's some sort of story wrapped around it, like these are all my grandmother's recipes from Italy. And I remember when I was out in the vineyard at three and, you know, people want a, mm-hmm. a bit more than just the bare bones, but mm-hmm. we should never forget the value of those bare bones. You know, you, you have some of these old school publications, Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, The Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast to an extent, magazines that come to your door. Now you can go online and get a subs- digital subscription or whatnot. But the internet and how everything has blossomed so quickly, I think has given you and this like, you know, new wave of critics an open door to do this more personal connection style of wine reviews. So some people come mm-hmm. to mind are like Jeb Dunnick, mm. um, James Suckling, although we're, if you've ever listened to the show, you know, we're, we're big, especially Pete, big fans of James Suckling here. Uh, no, it's just, we always poke fun at some of his reviews are like four words, you know, it's just like, you know, blackberries, spice, delicious drink. Right. You wow. know, versus <laughs> it's like, like a, a little bit more. You gave this 92, James. Come on, you know. Um, but, um, you know, how, you know, how was the transition as social media grew that Pete just brought up and the Internet grew? Like, how has this pivoted or pushed you in, in one direction or another? I think the biggest transformation for me was not just a larger audience and a more accessible one, but again, more deeply connected, more tribal. Um, but it's also what pushed me into teaching wine courses. So people came to me for the wine reviews and the articles and my mobile apps, but they stayed for the courses. And what I absolutely love is, you know, when I teach courses now, I have someone from Brazil. I have someone from New York. I have, um, you know, a number of people from California. This is just the current course I'm teaching, but uh, someone from the Netherlands. And we all get on like Zoom video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is so amazing. Um, I mean, they're all speaking English, of course, but uh, they just come from very diverse backgrounds and regions. And I absolutely love it. And they're all taught the, these people wouldn't meet each other except for I've gathered them together as my tribe, as other people are doing, and they love it. So it's not so lonely learning about wine anymore. Um, You know, you're connecting with other people. We're all tasting the same wine. It is just so much fun. It's a thrill, actually. So yeah, Pete and I were curious about the the online wine courses that you offer, and I guess you just touched on it. But how how does that work? It's a live interaction with you, or do the does the 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 uh, consumer, if you will, get you know videos that they watch? Is it a combination of both? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, it's a combination of both. So there's a whole set of pre-recorded videos, workbooks tasting sheets, and so on. That's all housed on um, a, a course learning platform uh, called Kajabi. So you don't have to be on Facebook to participate. That said, I also host private tastings inside a private Facebook group where we do those live as well. And then the third component is like on Zoom, which is like Skype, what we're using, and it's free and easy to use where we can all meet on video. So we kind of have three um, tiers of learning and getting together. So it's in one sense, it's self-paced in that you can go through all the modules of the course um, on your own time. Gear this towards the beginner, towards the middle, like novice, expert, where, you know, who, who should sign up? Everybody, no, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, yeah, but it's like to um, get the most value out of what you're exactly. doing. Exactly. So, what I say to people, um, the the people I would turn away, so to speak, from the Wine Smart course, which is my flagship, is if you have completed a sommelier program, if you're a master sommelier, uh, master of wine, please leave the room. <laughs> you don't need me. Um, but anyone who's taken either no wine courses or maybe up to one, two, or three courses, but still wants to get a deeper, richer foundation, wants to really 
sock it in there and also have an ongoing tasting group that they can meet with regularly, wants to practice. Maybe they're aiming for a master of wine. Um, that's who it's for. But, it, you know, it, it is also meant for beginners because I take you from the beginning of how to taste wine right through to how to buy it in the liquor store, how to choose it from a restaurant list and that sort of thing. So it's all there and you can go at your own pace and I give lifetime access. So once you sign up for the course, um, as I said, you can go at your own pace and that can mean years from now if you want. Cause that's the other change that, that the online world has brought, I think, to course delivery is that it's not one and done. You can always access the materials and you can always access me. Do you because have to be every, 21 to sign up for this, these online courses? Is there any legalities regarding that? I mean, lifetime, like, hey, that's, you know, the younger, the better. More, but yeah, exactly. You know, joking aside, you know, really, how does that work? Yeah. Uh, you do have to be legal drinking age wherever um, the law is for you. Like in Canada, it's 19. So um, I have had no underage uh, folks approaching me <laughs> yet. But um, I... I think, you know, if I compare it to a physical course, and I don't think we I have said, too many teenagers listening to our show yeah. right now. That oh, that sounds True. like fun. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. <laughs> um, but uh, compared to a physical course, I just see the online way of delivering a wine course is just, I think, infinitely better. I mean, there's always something to be said for live in-person interaction. That's great. Do that too, not instead of, mm -hmm. but you know, you can do it from your home. For those of us who are kind of concerned about going outside our home right now um, with coronavirus, I mean, this isn't a fear tactic at all, but a lot of people want to stay at home for different reasons. That could be one of them. The other is convenience. You don't have to hire a babysitter if you've got kids. Another one is like two for one benefit. I have a lot of husband, wives or mother, daughter, or father, son, all kinds of iterations taking it together. But you only pay the one course fee because you can do it together from home. Um, you know, you're not looking for parking and all the rest of it. And also if you miss a tasting, like even when I'm doing them live, I'm recording them all. So you can always go back to the video and do it yourself. Whereas if you miss a live course, uh, that's it. Uh, you missed it. And so some people, some of my course students even will take one of my videos and stream it to their iPad or to their TV, invite friends over and have a guided tasting where they're you know, watching me and they'll stop and start the video and kind of talk, talk amongst themselves and make notes and then keep going. So people have found ways to use it that I didn't even anticipate, but I absolutely love it. I would charge my friends to come over and watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, if I was yeah, hosting right. that, there'd be, a, there'd be a cover charge at the door for sure. But they have to provide all the wine. You don't have to provide the wine <laughs> or something. Yeah, charge a cover charge. Make money on it. Get your course feedback. <laughs> When I, when I think of the word course, you know, there's a beginning, the course itself, and then an end. Do, does the course end or is it just you just keep putting out new content for people? They, they can just keep up with you and, and it's a forever thing? So there's five core modules and it you could binge watch them Netflix style if you wanted to. And I said binge watch, not binge drink. But gotcha. you could go through all five modules. We know what you meant. Good, good, you good. <laughs> Um, so you could probably go through all of the modules in, I don't know, five to six hours. But what I've done is all the videos are no more than seven to 10 minutes because how we learn as adults is quite different from how we learn as children. So in, as kids, of course, we're in school all day. We have to sit in our desks and so on. Well, as adult learners, we just won't tolerate that. And that's another reason why I find that um, in-person classes are often not ideal for adult learners where you're sitting there for two to three hours and there's a lecturer and maybe a taste, you know, 10 little samples. Um, people want to do it on their own timeline and do short snippets so they feel like they're making progress. So you can go in and out and watch one 10-minute video and feel like you've picked up a real tip that you can implement right away. But to get back to your question, there are five modules, so lots of videos. If you can imagine dividing all of that up into seven to ten minutes, plus the workbooks and so on. So you can go through the core of the course and be done in five to six hours and stop there and say, that's all I want. Or you can keep going with me because it's it's no additional charge. And you just log in to Zoom and Facebook. Uh, those are bonuses. And taste with me. 
uh, every two weeks we have live tastings. So it's a lot of fun for those who want to carry on and keep going. That's awesome. I, where do the people look that up? Where, where can they go to find your courses? Sure. Uh, NatalieMcLean.com. Uh, there's slash course courses. Uh, they'll find uh, the courses that I offered there now. And um, I have a new one coming out that will be geared from beginner to advanced. And it's pairing cheese and wine with style and attitude. So even if you have, you know, W set or master of wine, this is a deep dive into pairing wine with 50 different types of cheeses. Ooh. So that will be coming soon as well. Wonderful. What can you give us like a little snippet on that? Like what's an, what's one awesome cheese and wine pairing that you just love? Oh, so I, we tackle, I've done a beta of this course already, by the way. So I, I've tested it with 20 students who did pay for it um, because I want to make sure that the, the, it, it was valid that there's an interest in this and, but I'll be launching it like the structure that I just um, mentioned, the wine smart course very soon. So a teaser pairing. Um, I mean, we do all the classics, of course, like Port and Stilton, blue cheese, but we get into very funky, weird cheeses. <laughs> like, um, And it, it's it's okay if you can't find the exact same cheeses, but mm -hmm. we explore all kinds of different ones, like uh, cheeses from Spain that are rolled in rosemary. And, you know, we'll try that with a Syrah that has maybe a bit of thyme and um, Garrigue and uh, lavender, those kinds of elements and see if we can put them together. And a sometimes nice it really bread. works. Exactly. So sometimes it works and sometimes it's disaster. And both are great learning opportunities, I think. Awesome. Before we wrap it up, I have, I love all this information about the courses. So we want to, we want to wrap it up on, on a di little bit different note though. I want to ask, what has got you intrigued in the wine world in terms of, I don't know, kind of got your goat a little bit. Like, what do you want to see change? Anything pissing you off in the wine world that you want to see different going on? Or is there anything happening that you're like, stop, we need to stop this right now? And this is that wine pod. So you can just go all out here, Natty. If you drop a few F-bombs, it's totally cool. That's where the conversation really went off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, first, you know, the whole abuse of wine scores when, you know, consumers no longer trust what they see on the shelves because everything's a 95. That would be one of them. Um, what else? See, I'm not a very um, angry, ticked off person. I, it's <laughs> so it's kind of hard to tell, Natalie. It's kind of hard to tell listening to your voice. Yeah, everything's sunshine over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, sometimes with the internet and social media, there's context that is lost. And so whether it's a review or anything in the wine world or outside the wine world, the the speed at which things travel without any context or any nuance sometimes really does tick me off. Like there, people don't stop. There's it's it's all judge and jury and it's done. Like people don't know any backstory of what might be happening. You know whether it's again a trend in the wine world or a score or anything. They just rush to judgment and it's this endless, mindless echo chamber of people forwarding stuff that's either misinformation or lack of context, or whatever. And I wish people would slow down again and get the real story. Love it. And I agree with that. So uh, last question from me. Uh, what is your favorite hangover cure? Woo. Um, all right. Maybe a glass of Burgundy. Yeah, um, all right. <laughs> hair, hair of the dog. May as well go with where you're going. <laughs> I, I do love eggs. Um, I eat lots of eggs anyway. But I find that they're... I don't know, somehow calming to my system. But, of course, I never get hangovers. I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not. Hashtag not. Yeah. So those would be the two things I would come up with. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, the time we're recording this, it's, it's right after International Women's Day. I applaud all of your success that you've been having. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Um, Thank you. And I hear that uh, you have a special gift for the audience. Uh, what, what is exactly what does that mean and where, how do they get it? 
I do. Um, so for your listeners, I've created a PDF, like a um, ultimate food and wine pairing guide. And it's really, um, I think, a good handy tool to have in the kitchen or the cellar. So it goes over the major types of wines and various dishes that will pair with them. And they can get that for free if they go to nataliemcclain.com forward slash wine pod. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, Hey audience, you know, grab that PDF, check it out, use it, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear about your experience with it. And, uh, again, Natalie, thank you so much for your time today. This has been amazing. Oh, my pleasure, Mike and Peter. I really enjoyed this conversation. You guys keep doing what you're doing because you're getting great feedback with your reviews on your podcast and, uh, it's really warranted this. I really enjoyed this. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Bye for now, guys. Mike, that was that was a lot of fun. Loved it. Felt like I went to Canada for a little while. That was cool. But you didn't, eh? Hey. <laughs> I, I, I think I saw that Kids in the Hall are coming. Speaking of Canada, Kids yeah. in the Hall are coming back. Yeah, I saw that also. Oh, I can't wait. I don't know. Maybe she knows them. Don't all Canadians know each other? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that true? I, I wanted to start talking hockey with her because, you know, I'm a hockey mm. fan and mm. There's some really good players, Mike Gartner from Ottawa, where she's from. So, uh, but anyway, on the wine side, I wonder if she is a hockey fan. I can't like it's such a like kind of brute sport, and you know, there's know. lots of fighting and stuff. And she's just such a eloquent and well written, well spoken, just po super polished. And yeah. it, was, it was awesome to chat with her for sure, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I learned a lot about kind of her insights into how she does business. I mean, business is, you know, I'm using that in air quotes, right? Because yeah. I think that her approach is pretty natural. <laughs> Natty, natural, Natalie. <laughs> nice tie-in. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I really got the sense that she's genuine in her approach. Mm -hmm. I think that she really understands what she likes and she hasn't compromised other than the scoring. I didn't hear a lot of compromise on how she approaches wine. Yeah, I agree. I appreciate that as well. And I think going after that kind of just that personal connection and, you know, quality over quantity in terms of maybe her fan base or subscribers or the people that she works with. It sounds like she really wants to know everybody uh, to some extent. And uh, yeah, it sounded sounded really cool. It sounded very interesting. Yeah, for sure. And she's been doing this for a long time. So if you've got any questions about wine and want to take one of her courses. I think that's a good idea. And I, I really am excited to check out that, that download. Cause yeah. no matter what, when it comes to food and wine pairing, that's all opinion too. Now there are some classic things, of course, but I'm always looking for other people's opinions on how to pair things up and what to look for. I think that that's the most exciting part of wine for me anyway, is when it pairs up with like some unusual thing that you pair up with wine and you're like, oh, like I, I'll, I'll never forget the day many, many years ago where the first time somebody said to me, hey, you know what you should try with that fried chicken? That champagne over there. Mm. I'll never forget the, that combination of fried chicken and champagne. So like this Del Teto we've been drinking today, plate of fried chicken and that Del Teto, I've been craving it since we sat down basically. Oh man, I should have. Should grab some Popeye's chicken sandwich or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's that for us, like in the industry, fried chicken and champagne is sort of like become a staple or a classic yeah. pairing. But maybe now. out in the audience, nobody really, you know, thinks about, you know, you're, you're talking about champagne. It's like, oh, caviar or something. No, you, you can do French fries with some truffle salt or, right. um, you know, we love doing, you know, got a great little local fish fry place and just get a, an assortment of some fried fish. And, and I mean, anything fried and bubbles is kind of pretty classic but you know popcorn movie night you know I, there's just champagne is a lot of fun very versatile so yeah i agree yeah i mean and like you said it's become common now and it might have been common 20 years ago when i started you know when i first had this yeah. and was drinking it i just didn't know about yeah, it's it. it's new it's new to somebody Correct. At some, everybody at one point in time right? and that's the whole thing i i felt this from natalie and i think we're the same way which is probably the kismet, you know, that I felt with her is the fact that we don't assume anybody knows anything. Hmm. And sometimes we might dumb it down too much for somebody. That's just going to be our approach. And that's, I think, a little bit of her approach too, right, is kind of start at the beginning and build up from there. And don't assume that somebody knows 
something, right? And I don't know. I'm, I'm excited about it, and I really am glad that she came on the show. Yeah, very cool. Very nice of her. So, yeah, thank you again, Natalie. Absolutely. All right, that should do it for this edition of That Wine Pod. Remember, life is short, so drink what you like tonight. Thank you for listening to That Wine Pod. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at at That Wine Pod. And we are That Wine Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out Mike on Instagram at Vino Mike and Pete is at Fat Man Stories. Please subscribe to That Wine Pod on your favorite podcast app and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. The music is Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. That Wine Pod is a production of Paragon Media. Oh, <laughs> oh,